0: Hello, Welcome to Spaceman Pod. I'm Ian Edmund. And I'm Mark Lassels. And uh, we're going to chat about a few things today. We've got another song to go over, another gig to go over. We've got someone else's uh, introduction to Spaceman 3. But uh, it's first of all, just start off by saying thanks for everyone who uh, got in touch and said some nice things about our first episode. Um, Let's see how long we can keep that going for. Um, (laughs) Right, we're recording this um, just before uh, a couple of uh, New Spaceman related records come out. They'll definitely be out by the time you hear this. But uh, what have we got? We've got Spiritualizer are doing a reissue campaign at the moment. That's right. And uh, we're about to have the issue of uh, Laser Guided Melodies. Which I
1: think has think has arrived for some people.
0: Indeed, absolutely, officially out on the twenty third, which is just a little bit ahead of when we're recording. Um, but yeah, they started to be around as people start showing them off on Twitter and the like. The white vinyl for the Laser Guided Melodies reissue sold out very quickly. It did. So uh, anyone who's interested in trying to get the set as, as these things as they come out, I gather that Pure Phase is going to have a glow in the dark uh, vinyl. Um, <clears throat> might want to think about ordering them as early as they can. But, you know, they're the albums that uh, many of us know and love anyway, and uh, I always hope it gets some new people on board as well. So mm. uh, that, that's an ongoing campaign. I think we've got June, I think, is uh, when Pure Phases And uh, it's first four albums, so that's going to go on for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Also on uh, 23rd of April is re- going to be released, or has been released, um, is um, the Sonic Boom remix album of uh, his last album uh there's a couple of tracks that's already been released and made available
1: and also, uh, also on a fairly dramatic looking colored vinyl
0: is isn't it and for for people like me who are not quite so vinyl purist, slightly disappointing there's no cd version of this but it is available as a download uh and in fact if you do buy the download you get one track which isn't on the vinyl the um christmas remix oh, that's right. yeah, yeah. um which was available on its own a little while ago, but that's part of the the digital download of this album. So apart from those two previews, haven't heard anything of that yet. Um, look forward to seeing what what Pete's come up with this time.
1: There is a copy for me somewhere, but I have not. I'm yet to hear it.
0: Well, and what else happened recently? Uh, Jason did an interview for Uncut, and yes. this was one where people were encouraged to send in questions for him in advance. Notice a few names that have cropped up on. Uh, yeah. On, on, the Spirit, on the Spaceman 3 Facebook groups. Um, and I'm sure the most interesting thing from most of our points of view that he said there, he seems to be indicating that he's made another album during lockdown. And that going it to, to be finished. finished. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a little unclear. You could read it in two different ways, but the most optimistic reading is that that album is finished and he's already started working on another one as well. I mean, it could be that he's still talking about the, the first album. When he's talking about writing some more but I, I think it's it's a follow-up to that i mean so, one of the
1: previous interviews he was actually saying that uh, the last album could be the last spiritualized album so this is certainly uh promising that he, he uh, that did CD say 1. that
0: I, I think he also said that about um sweetheart sweet light as well though and someone addresses that in the uncut interview where they say about you said that that was going to be the last album or the the nothing hurt was going to be Mm. and i think jason sort of suggests it's a bit of a defense mechanism so that there's no pressure on him if people are sort of expected that he's finished making music he he won't have people hustling him all the time about it that's probably true (laughs) I don't know if that works i'm sure that it's the first thing people ask about all the time i remember um uh going in the days when i was involved i don't think i mentioned this last time but for anyone who doesn't know i i my wife and i used to run the fan club for the Boo radleys and when they had their launch party for their their britpop album for wake up which was held in the former headquarters of mi5 this wonderful old building right next door to um, to the albert hall um and probably the most star-studied if you count the people who who i like <laughs> as stars thing that we went to and i think that was the only time i had a chance to chat to kevin shields and i was so conspicuous of the fact that everyone he talked to presumably the first thing anyone said is whence the new <laughs> i thought right i won't talk about that so the first thing i said to him was have you got any more ear stuff you're working on is that coming out but i think because everyone said about my buddy valentine he just assumed that that's what i'd asked about and started talking <laughs> about that instead so uh, Didn't quite get him onto AAR then, anyway. Um, But that'll be good. I mean, Jason, I thought this about going back to when um, Amazing Grace came out. It it came out fairly close to Let It it Come Down. And no one knew it was being worked on until suddenly there it was. Or I remember that was the days when albums were getting leaked across the internet Uh, i
1: remember that a very lo-fi low quality album uh, or a a kind of leak going
0: out just logging on to one of the forums one day and people were saying look here's links to the new spiritualized album we couldn't really quite believe it i mean i don't think that sort of thing does a tremendous amount of damage because all of us who who would have downloaded it i mean i don't know how many copies of that album I've gone it's not even my favourite spiritualised album <laughs> by quite a long way that's due a revisit actually I think because every time I do go back to one I haven't played for a while I'm often surprised by, by well there's been a lot of
1: discussion that. on uh, as we were touched upon earlier a lot of discussion on Let It Come Down which is uh, celebrating an anniversary and yeah. uh, people uh, started to realise that it's actually aged very gracefully and is uh, probably a lot better than people realise that, uh, that it that that it it was at the time yeah. everyone thought Ladies and Gentlemen Part 2 which it wasn't and uh in, in many people's opinions mine included i think it's actually a superior
0: record so uh i'm not entirely sure that i agree with that but i, I think there's a lot to, to like on it and i think it's definitely jason's sort of cleverest record lyrically as well there's lots of really smart things in there we could go on we've got to be careful now because this could turn into a, <laughs> a three-quarter of an hour discussion about let it come down alone but i mean i listened to some songs in AE, which i hadn't listened to for quite a long time recently and again um ups and downs, but there's this, this some on there that I really, really liked it a lot more than I'd, I'd remembered. So, um, yeah, looking forward, Jason, if you got it, well done. As soon as you're ready. Presumably, it's not <laughs> going to come out at any time to overlap with the reissue campaign. So, um, I, I think we'll have till the end of the year at the earliest. Yep. But, uh, yeah, look forward to it. What else has been going on recently? Pete Bain, how, our, our Pete Baseman has announced um, a couple of gigs in November supporting uh, the Lucifer Sams. Uh, There's one at uh, right. the Victoria in Dalston on the 18th of November, one at Hotbox in Chelmsford on the 19th. I'll um, put some links to where you can get tickets for them uh, on the uh, on the page on my website where, where the podcast is.
1: Can we also um, mention that, uh, that Pete Bain is writing a book?
0: Absolutely, yes. He's been mentioning this on his blog for a while. Uh, so uh, that's going to cover... His time in various bands. Um, not entirely sure. I think he was optimistic that he'll try and get it out this year. Um, we'll have to wait and see. These things often take longer than anyone imagines. But um, It'll be an interesting yeah. read. That yeah, I'm sure that'll be super hopefully by November when those gigs are I'll actually feel comfortable enough to uh to to sit in a room with other people again although you never know because by then we'll have had the summer and everyone will have mixed together again but anyway anyone listening to this from the future hello future people you know, it was a bizarre few years we're going through isn't it uh I think that's all the sort of current stuff the only other thing that I've done recently which um, has no natural place to be mentioned other than here is I finally I got hold um, earlier in the week of um, 2013 pressing of the perfect prescription because uh, that's right no such thing as too many copies of the perfect prescription um, which was a bit strange in one respect because it's a vinyl copy and I don't have a functioning turntable mind you having said that I'd forgotten almost how nice it is when you hold just holding a record. And holding that one in particular and just looking at it is is quite an experience. Mark and I have discussed previously, and we will save for a future episode, the fact that um, everyone who says what a terrible cover that is, is absolutely crazy. It is a a perfect distillation of what you're about to enjoy. inside. So, yes, just looking at it was great. But the main reason I bought it was because um, it came with a download code. And I wanted to see if... um, the, the download was any better than the, the the rip I've got from Fires 1989 CD when they first reissued it, which doesn't really sound that good. I gather the vinyl sounds pretty good, although not as good as the original glass issue. But I've always been very disappointed with the CD, and the download really sounds much the same. It's a little bit louder, a bit boosted. It's just flat, I think. It's yeah. got a flat sound compared to the original
1: glass vinyl. It's,
0: it's a bit muddy and... On, on. I don't know if it's all the way through. I'm not aware of too much else, but on "Take Me to the Other Side," there's some audible distortions and things mm. that are dropping out of channels. The uh, lyrics in the second verse, just after um, "and we'll walk across the sand," and it suddenly pans off to one side and does it again throughout the rest of it. It's just a bit disappointing, really. I know there mm. are all sorts of reasons why it's difficult for these things to get proper ground-up remixes, but it'd be so lovely one day to hear one of that and "Sound of Confusion," which sounds pretty poor as well mm. really
1: it's just a shame that glass never actually got round to issuing cds of that because at that time mm. i was working uh in the virgin megastore in london and that's we were just ordering any of the music that we wanted ourselves uh the the music buyers would get them and there were catalog numbers for the glass cds for those two albums but they just never appeared. Well, I, yeah. I kept on ordering them and they
0: never happened. Yes, it's a shame. And I, I'm wondering, in, in terms of importance, as it were, even for people who aren't fans, to have an album like that, is it, is it the most important album that doesn't have a decent copy you can buy of it? Last time we spent some time chatting about what turned out to be both of our favourite Spaceman 3 songs in uh, Feel So Good. And we picked another one um, almost sort of at random, trying to get something at this stage in our in our podcasting history, which is still trying to capture the whole band. Because obviously there are lots of songs which are, are more to some of the personnel than the other. And realizing after we'd settled on this, that we appear to have just taken one step back. Because if you go back one track from Feel So Good on the Perfect Prescription, you hit their version of Transparent Radiation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I mean it's a cover version, but cover versions are a really important part of the Spaceman 3 story. So this is uh, a song by Bang called the Recreola. Um I know very little about the Red Crayola. I think you might know it's a smidgen more.
1: I don't know a massive amount about the Red Crayola than they were an American psychedelic band who were also on International Artists, which is the same label as uh, the 13th floor elevators, which may or may not have been how Pete and Jason discovered them. Um, I think one of the interesting things to say about the fact that it's a that it's a cover version is that it's not a cover version of the original version. It's a cover version of a demo version. So, uh, I mean, already they they'd kind of gone off on some tangent uh, when 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 Pete. Pete discovered this, uh, and anybody going to uh, the first Red Crayola album, which is called Parable of Arable Land, expecting to hear a kind of pristine uh, original version of Transparent Radiation is in for quite a surprise, because that version bears very little similarity to the version which Spaceman 3 produced. Uh, it's very uh, tripped out, a lot of kind of weird backwards stuff and echo, uh, but that whole album is is... Pretty psychedelic, anyway. Um, And the version which Pete chose to cover is from uh, a compilation on international artists. Uh, which is far more sparse and sounds a lot more like the Spaceman version. Uh, And in fact, I've now managed to forget the name of the compilation, uh, which will... Epitaph for a Legend. Epitaph for a Legend. There we go. I had it in my hands about two hours ago, but uh, never mind.
0: Although whether I'd remember that, if I didn't have in front of me on my screen right now, um, (laughs) uh, an excerpt from an interview that that Pete did with um, the first issue of the Outer Limits Spaceman 3 fanzine, where he says... um, I was a Crayola fan since I was about 13. I've been going to Vicky's. In the interview, there's a little asterisk there as if they're about to explain further on what Vicky's is, but I think they forget to do it. Presumably that's some record shop in the locality. That's all I can assume. Um, And seeing the Red Crayola album in the racks under R, and I thought, who are they? They're weird. I thought they were a weird new wave band that came out in 1978, you see. And I thought it was one of these weird new wave bands. Anyway, before I started getting into psychedelic stuff, Simon Franklin, presumably the guy who worked there, said to me, check this out. I've never found anyone who likes it, and you can have it. He gave me the first Red Crayola album, and I listened to it, and I just adored it. It was this incredible way out rock and roll. And indeed, Pete then goes on to say what you were saying, Mark, that it was the Epitaph for a Legend um, version, which the Spaceman 3 version is modelled on. And you can tell that if uh, you look at the, the lyrics, because um, there are differences between the, the album, the Recreola album version, and that demo version in, in what the lyrics are and how they're laid out. Some of them are re- rejigged and, and reorganised. And if you do a straight comparison with the Spaceman 3 version, then obviously the lyrics have been taken from, from that demo. Speaking about lyrics, you talk about this being a psychedelic band from late 60s. I mean, does it make any sense as anything other than the ramblings of someone having an amazing trip?
1: <laughs> lyrics are just deranged.
2: <laughs> Indeed, yes.
1: But uh, we were we were talking earlier about how... Pete contacted Mayo Thompson of Red Creole in order to actually fine tune the lyrics, and Mayo Thompson couldn't remember
0: the song. Indeed. So <laughs> I think Pete told him the lyrics that he got, and, and Mayo Thompson said, "Yeah, that sounds right." <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm unfair, but I can imagine this conversation from Mayo Thompson's point of view: going, "Who is this guy bringing me up to ask about lyrics?" Yeah, that'll do. Off you go. <sighs> Although he does, I mean, they, they are. I mean, they're not. They're not perfect, to be honest. Um, he's misheard the odd thing, but nothing stunning or significant there's one line in the Recreola version which i can't make out it's in between the red signs outside which i contain and some sensuality i can't explain there's a different line in there which um pete makes no attempt to try and reproduce just as well because it's almost impossible to make out and that's why in the spaceman 3 version you get some sensuality i can't explain twice it's, it's not a repeated line in the original, but Pete repeats it so that the flow of the song works out. Properly. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. But, uh, I mean, the lyrics aren't important. It is the feel. Uh, whichever version you listen to, whether it's Creola or Spaceman 3, they've got a feel. Like you say, the, the album version is it's just completely wild. Really. Um quite a tough yeah. listen,
1: that that album I found. It's curious because uh, of course Pete remastered that album a few years ago. So Absolutely, uh, yeah. it's a kind of a neat circle there.
0: Mm, yeah. Um, but the demo version again has has a different feel, a much more stripped-down one. With but English then... accents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then, and this is the thing which really I think characterizes so much of, of what Spaceman Three do with their cover versions they just do something that i don't think you would would really expect especially coming off the back of um of sound of confusion and all the early era stuff where they've taken some pretty heavy stuff already and if anything they've just made it a bit heavier whereas here they take something which is you know going all over the place they could have done something quite similar or they could have turned up the guitars but it's completely the opposite it's it's relaxed down about as far as you can go Mm. um and it seems that this was the plan almost from the beginning because there are quite a few versions that they recorded probably not as many versions as people might think because having sort of sat down and and stuck them into editing software and and sort of played them over each other and and tried to work out which ones are, are actually different i think there are only five completely different recordings that we know of that spaceman three did the first one is um well well, not the first one that was released but chronologically i think the first one is a version that appears on um the second cd of the how the blues should have turned out compilation that's right the second track on 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 that one and in the liner notes pete describes it as as just for um him to learn to sing it so it's just him and jason on there and it is very stripped down and there's only chords played and jason's not doing any of his his fancy um fingering that he does in in the the other versions there's a little bit of the lovely little feedback effect during the choruses that uh, graham walker puts on there but yeah that's that's the most stripped down and introductory one i think we've got there how did that end up on that disc mark uh, I'm not quite sure. I think Pete chose that
1: one. I do have some history with this disc because um, it was a, it's an odd tale that uh, Pete rang me up one day and said that he had a collection of cassettes that he'd found um, and he wanted to go through them, extract the stuff that was good. And I think what he wanted was somebody who knew the music very well, but wasn't actually involved in the production or playing of it. So he asked me if I'd go and listen to these bits and pieces with him and we could work out what to do with them and, and which were good, which were bad, everything. So on one absolutely gloriously sunny day, I drove down to rugby and spent that day and evening at Pete's house. And we went through a vast box of cassettes. Uh, he had made liner notes on, on, uh, everything really not liner notes he just made he, he jotted down notes on almost every track which she felt were was was worthwhile and then we sat for i suppose three or four hours just listened to all this stuff which uh was an amazing thing for me to do as as a fan to just listen to endless obscure space and three recordings none of which had been heard before by people outside the band and uh, listening to them with uh, one of the guys who made them was it was certainly very exciting and we went through lots and lots of different pieces uh you've obviously seen what's what came out there were several arguments about what was going to go on and what wasn't going to go on he wanted that that first version of transparent radiation on I like the idea of the second one which had the strings on because I felt that was almost like a demo for for the version which came out on perfect prescription because it's got Owen John's beautiful strings on it and so a compromise was made and uh, both those versions ended up on there there were a couple of other things on on that compilation where there was quite a bit of disagreement. Uh, there's something which Pete wanted on called, uh, I'm not going to have to find, it. it's called Tremolo Experiment, that's right. And it just seemed to be just a series of beats with a kind of warbly thing, and which he found a lot more interesting than I did. On the other hand, there was the version of these blues, which hadn't really been heard properly before and it was a nice clean version. And I wanted that on, which Pete, didn't particularly want on. And eventually, after about an <laughs> hour's worth of argument, this compromise is where if he was allowed his uh, Trebello experiment on, then I was allowed to include these blues. So I, I, I do like to think that's one of my claims to fame as I got that version out, which of course it, it came out on Dominic Martin's label as well. Well,
0: indeed, I mean, two of the ones that you've just said you pushed to get on there were on that uh, DJ Jones single. Because the, yeah, the violin right. the violin mix of transparent <laughs> radiation on there as well. And these blues. So, yeah, well, we, we owe you a service. And now we can only worry as to what else didn't get on there at all. But
1: Well, he must still have those cassettes. But I, I really think that we went through them with a fine-tooth yeah. comb and extracted everything that was of great interest but uh, it's it was great thing to be involved in an, an amazing day uh helped by glorious sunshine and then we had a meal in the evening and then i drove back to leeds
0: that fantastic, night fantastic fantastic well look we'll get to that version with the violins in a moment i think there's another one that was probably rec- i mean look this is my supposition i'm afraid but i think there's another version that was recorded before that one came on because there's another one that doesn't have any violins on it which um well, I'd call it the rolling version. It's the one that starts off with oh, studio rolling, chatter. Rolling. rolling, rolling, rolling. Yes, indeed. And the first time that that was released was um, on the a cassette called Oozing, Oozing Through the Ozone Layer. That's right. Put out by by Ziggy, a local scenester uh, who is is Mark Weber, who who went on to be in Pulp eventually, but he did a lot of fanzines and cassettes and organised events uh, around this this time. And there were two demos, or two spacemen 3 demos on that cassette. Um, this version of Transparent Radiation and also a version of Come Down Easy. And they were it, it was impossible to find that. I mean, I've never seen a copy. Anyone who's got one, you're very welcome to sell it to me if you like. But I doubt that I'll be able to afford what you're asking for it. But then because they were so rare, um, they were stuck out on a, uh, a bootleg 7-inch in the mid-90s. So that's how many people have managed to get access to them. And since then, we've got proper issues because it's been that version of transparent radiation, this rolling one, was included on the Space Age recording sample of the new Atlantis. So that's where you can get it in best quality. That's right. Um, it was also part of, of what... of been known as the out of it sessions which were just early rough mixes of perfect prescription material which the band were giving to to friends and the like and then they got circulated but a large amount of that has been subsequently issued on forged prescriptions anyway um also though it has sort of had an official release because it is the extra extra track on the most recent versions of taking drugs to take to make music to take drugs to it's, it's called the organ version now when you listen to the version on the new atlantis it hasn't got an organ on it but um when you s- sort of play them next to each other it's obvious that it is the same underlying thing so presumably they recorded it and then tried different versions different things on top of it i actually think that organ version is probably one of the least successful Spaceman 3 recordings, not because of the underlying track and not because of organs in general. There's some fantastic organ work on some Spaceman tracks but it's just a bit too harsh for me Mm -hmm. on that one when it cuts in, I recoil a little bit and it's a bit too much to take. That version... Uh, though, is um, taken from a February 1987 rehearsal that we talked about a bit last time. It's the same rehearsal that's got my favourite version of, of Walking With Jesus in it. And mm-hmm. so I guess the fact that it's appeared with different mixes and different instruments on it, that rather suggests that that whole rehearsal must have been um, properly recorded. Presumably it was a rehearsal at VHF. Um, because it, likely, it, wouldn't it? It's also got some of the feedback swirls which is a producer effect. So, um, yeah, it must have been a, a proper, a properly recorded rehearsal. My guess is they were doing that rehearsal um, because it was only a few weeks away from uh, their first European tour, six-state tour. So uh, I guess they were sort of tightening up for that. Certainly the, the, the way they played walk, Walking With Jesus around that time is very much the same as the way they did it in that rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Although, interestingly they're rehearsing Transparent Radiation and they don't play it live on, on that tour at all. Uh, but we'll come to live versions of it a little bit later. I think the next version after that is the one that you, you've already talked about, that first one with the violins that's on How the Blues. It's And, and as you say, it got released properly on the um, DJ Tones single. And it, it, it's starting to come together now, isn't it? You know, it's, it's nice and well-recorded. Everything sounds very clear. But also, I think everything's a lot more upfront and in your face than it is on, on the final versions we got on the single and album, where it's all smoothed out in a really nice way. I mean, the, the final ones, I feel it's it's almost like a blanket you can wrap yourself up mm-hmm. in. It's, it's so serenely put together. And this has got all those ingredients. But for example, the guitar picking is just a, so prominent that you can't relax to it in the same way i mean it's a really good recording it's just not the the final version really after than that i think it is just final versions of course we've got two finished ones because the well it's not really a seven inch version is it because there wasn't a seven inch but the shorter one
1: hmm.
0: um it's a bit weird
1: the non-flashback version
0: yes it's a bit odd really what do you make of that one oh, it's The one that's got all the different vocal tracks on it
1: well i rather like it i like that that the whole sequence of that, though. I think the way that, that the tracks flow into each other, I think uh-huh. is, is lovely. I've had, I mean, I think it's, it gives you a kind of taster. I, I, I've had friends who have said that the, when the second version comes in, that it goes on for too long, but I, I always feel like it could carry carried on for another 10 minutes as far as I was concerned, and I'd be quite happy. It's one of those things where they just arrive at a, a kind of sort of sound texture situation and they just stay there, which is uh-huh. what they were so good at. So uh, for me, it's uh, uh, that the first version is slightly odd, but I think it's a kind of prelude to the second one. Yeah. Well, and it, and it, and it works it. with the interruption of Ecstasy Symphony in the middle. So
0: I thought you were going to say it works with the interruption of a siren in the background, which is sort of something I just heard. <laughs> I did the, hear that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I <Quite> know <laughs>
1: what's going on outside.
0: Yeah, um, yeah I, 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 I find the vocals a little bit of a challenge. Not. Well, partly because Pete's not the best vocalist in the world, which is not meant to be a, a criticism, because it, it's feeling rather than technical skill for pretty much everything that, that I'm interested in. A little harsh. <laughs> but he makes, he makes references to it. He's, he's talked about how on his most recent album, you know, that he needs a, a, an engineer in there to make sure sh- to tell him to go and redo his vocals. He said that himself quite recently. Um, and a lot of the time it's fine. I think it's the fact that he's singing a little higher up, not really his natural Register so much. I mean, in the in the, in the long version, it's nice and is usual um, lower pitch and uh, works really brilliantly. But I don't think it's that as a problem so much as as the triple tracked vocals. I find double tracking a bit of a, a strain anyway. Like I said last time, me yeah, a massive Beatles fan, but so many of those early recordings where everyone's double tracked, it's it's so obviously because they felt their voices were a bit too thin to carry them a single track and it depends who's doing it um i mean Macca is is so on the case that he pretty much always manages to produce the same performance twice over so it feels like it's just slightly phased if anything but lennon who s- seems to improvise it every time to be slightly different it really feels like it's just two different takes going on roughly at the same time but not quite and With what Pete did with transparent radiation, you've got three takes to contend with. He says he put one on the left, one on the right, one roughly in the middle, and then throughout the mixing, move them around. And um, look, I think
1: was that that not the start of when he he started to sort of experiment with some of the effects he could use on his vocals? I mean, if you jump forward to something like the backward echo on Honey or something Mm -hmm. like that, that's where he was really starting to add some texture and some. Uh, a more experimental side to that and
0: well it wouldn't it do- surprise me and of course this is obviously the same time that um he was experimenting to come up with ecstasy symphony and yep. that similar sort of thing you know put everything that's through tracking all track over the place. exactly yeah so you know it's worth doing worth trying out um I, not not it doesn't completely hit the spot for me but who cares when only a few minutes later you do have the final version and and I think on this occasion it, it is one of the cases for me where um the final finished version really is where it's all perfectly come together it's stunning it's absolutely
1: yeah. stunning I think the little frills the last note of violin on as a way uh, to close
0: side one uh, just... I, and the violin I'm assuming it's not the same violins recording from the earlier violin version because it sounds like there's a just a bit more um, experimenting going on just go all over the place and see where it takes you and it just it's far more in.
1: polished though isn't
0: it oh yeah yeah no absolutely lovely um and jason's doing all of his little pieces to go with it as well all this, his little bits of instrumentation which are just wonderful although interestingly in versions of this um the, the underlying track, which becomes flashback, the, the, the album and, and long single version, has been released in all sorts of early mixes with different bits missing, um, some of which sound so different at a glance that you would think they are different versions. I mean, the the version on um, the opening track on disc two of Forge Prescriptions is the same version, but there's no violins. The um, picking on the guitar is, is much higher in the mix. Um, In fact, because you can hear that a lot more clearly than you can in the finished one, uh, you can hear that there's um, a very rare uh, mistake from Jason about... um, about 550 into it, he, he mm. picks out the wrong notes, and then tries, I think, to cover it up by making it like he meant to do that by doing it again. <laughs> but I think then realizing, no, this sounds awful, and moving on. It's only a few seconds. Uh, I think it's still there in the final version, but by that point, it's all mixed a little more lower, and everything is so smooth anyway. And mm. the violins are there; you don't really notice it. I mean, they probably wasn't even expecting that to be a main the main tape by the end of it. It got released again. On the Losing Touch With Your Mind compilation, um, described there as an alternate mix, which seems to be accurate in this case. Again, no violins. Um, It's got the same pick guitars from that version we've just been talking about, but it's got a bit of extra echo on the chorus and uh, it fades out. Um, a bit early. Yeah, it's about a minute less of that than than you would have expected. And then the US magazine forced exposure. I was
1: about to mention that one. I've now gotten a slight muddle as to which version has appeared on it. Right. Well,
0: they claimed uh, in their subscription offer, M-O. They gave away a seven inch, that, um, well, they claimed that this one was... Um, uh yeah a, a completely different version to the one on the album uh, but it's not it's the same version but you wouldn't know it listening to it again it's got more effects and it fades out even earlier there's you, you lost, lost a couple of minutes from from the longer version there so it's well worth having it is an interesting mix but it is it is the same one uh after on other than that all we've got is is the finished version that was on the single and the album and it is it's just a, the I don't know how they've done that. When you listen to the the previous ones, which have got pretty much the same instrumentation and the same instruments, even the ones with violins and, and guitar, and um, but there's, it, it, yeah, it, it's just um, it's like melted chocolate, or you know, or like I said earlier, it's or, or wrapping yourself up in a warm blanket. It's it's just perfect zoning out music for a start. You can get completely lost in it. Um, like I said at the beginning, I really don't think it makes any sense. But Pete um, manages to imbue it with a, a, a seriousness that makes you think there probably is something going on, if I could just be clever enough to understand what this is here.
1: I was wide awake in a dream.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so to suddenly
1: <laughs> include that, people used to take the piss out of me when I played them that. Just It was old hippie nonsense,
0: but I, <laughs> I, yeah, I stuck to it. <laughs> i actually i don't i under, do enjoy listening to that very long ecstasy symphony but i think somehow the more concise perfect prescription one works just as well you you can survive without needing the entirety of it and the fact that they've stolen those bits of the uh the, the guitar licks and the violins and overlaid them as well uh works just as well, i think um but as you say yeah that i i don't get what people are saying they think it is uh too long. There is one of these occasions where it could quite happily go on for for a big chunk longer. I think if you listen to
1: Spatian three and you say any of their music is too long, you shouldn't really be listening to (laughs) Space.
0: Well that's probably true, yes. Um so Uh, Yeah, I'm just glancing where I've got all the lyrics in front of me, but I don't think it bears much analysis. Maybe we can (laughs) not bother too much with that. I do think, however, that Pete might have been stretching a point a bit too far in the latter day Spaceman 3 interviews when he was talking about a lot of environmental stuff to say that they've been uh, addressing this for a while with the reference to ozone in transparent radiation. I don't I don't think that's got anything at all to do with the ozone layer, especially when it was in the <laughs> 60s. I mean, you know, it's a nice little link to make, but um, yeah, maybe not. Although, you know, great that this is one of the things that was so important to Pete, and anyone who looks at his, um, his Instagram feed or his Twitter feed at the moment will be aware that that's still
1: hmm. it, one of his conscious.
0: major preoccupations. And if you buy his album... Uh, through Bandcamp, which I would recommend is the best way to get the most money to the artists. So buy your music from Bandcamp if you're not going to buy it from a local record shop. Then um, there's a donation from every sale he makes to an environmental charity. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, do it that way. <laughs> well, I um, had a sit down and, and checked out all of the live versions. I could find of of Transparent Radiation. You must have a few. There are a few, and it is... uh, Well, the first one is from a November 1986 um, gig. So this is before it was fully recorded, certainly before it was issued. This was a couple of gigs that they did um, a week apart from each other called the Birthday Gigs, because the gigs were one before and one just after Uh, both Pete and Jason, who for anyone who's missed out on this vital piece of information in the past, have the same birthday. Uh, This is in between their 21st birthday. Uh, That sounds right. 86. Yes, I think that's right. Um, And in the first gig was described as just being new songs. And it seems that all the songs they played that night were the first performances that anyone had heard and they do transparent radiation there. As is not unusual for many Spaceman Three performances, took two attempts. First one falls (laughs) apart pretty quickly with monitor problems. Um, And for most of the recording, the only uh, instrument you can hear is bass. There's there's not much, uh, well, if there is any guitar going on a lot of the time, it didn't really make its way onto the recording. It's a pretty poor recording. It is a very bass heavy recording. So it might just be that we can't make them out. I think that it's just pete doing the chords because he tends to come in with them in between the verses Mm. um and i'm not sure there's any jason on there at all but maybe that's just the recording but it's it's not a bad stab it's got a nice slow tempo which i wouldn't bother mentioning because of course everyone knows transparent radiation nice slow song if it weren't for what they do with it later on so it Uh, it's quite good. Pete does say at the end, you can hear him saying something like lots of mistakes. Uh, They're quite aware. It uh, could be doing with a bit more polishing. But then after that, um, look, we obviously don't have recordings of every Spaceman three gig. We don't know what was going on at all of them, but we got quite a few in between them. But the next time it appears to be played is not until November, 1988. So it's about two years later. Wow. Um, at a gig at Yulu, by which point they've got a new rhythm section. So that appears to be the only previous, that Reverberation Club, looks like it's the only time that that lineup ever played it live. Um, you, can, you can now hear the band uh, a little more clearly. Uh, and again, it's still nice and slow tempo and done a little bit like, um, like the flashback version. Still not entirely sure whether there's any Jason on it. I have to say the chords are quite strong but that's about all you can hear and then it becomes a bit more of a, of a regular there's another gig uh, only um about two weeks later after that um where it gets another outing but that's this very unusual show at Drummond's in Euston oh yeah that's right I was meant to go to that oh and did, and, and, and <laughs> what was it you would have missed that would have been so unusual
1: what do you mean? Uh, was it, it was Well, that was the one that was just meant to be Pete and Jason on their own wasn't it
0: uh-huh. but in the end although it was advertised as as um Pete and Jason from spaceman 3 uh in the end Jason did go to that gig but, but didn't, didn't play. play and it was it was Pete Kber and, and will will Carruthers were the only ones on stage and I don't really know how late in the day that happened probably quite late in the day because um I mean will's written before about how I think he was either a little nervous that night or just made a few mistakes. And it's, it's a, but you know interesting because they did some material that doesn't usually get done. And and again, it's a return of transparent radiation, mm. which again falls apart the first time. And Pete stops and asks for more vocals in the monitor and all the usual things. Um, yeah, I mean that one sort of stops during the the quiet choruses because if there's there's no one. Um, playing to keep it going but you know it's 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 another quite clear recording but a very uh unusual and, and unique version then
1: it was but, always an easy song for Pete to play on his own really I mean he could play it with a band or without so. well that's
0: that's true of course yes there's not a lot of musicianship are, are required just for the basic chords it's nice when there are other people fleshing it out a bit more and again obviously Jason didn't play that night so there's no extra musical stuff there it's not until the march of 89 that it really becomes a, a staple so mm. starting with uh, gigs in in oxford poly and then on to liverpool and portsmouth um it, it's showing up now as an encore but again in those playings maybe it's just the recordings but um Still no evidence of, of Jason taking any part in it. There's You can only hear chords rather than any um, little twiddly bits done over the top. Mm. Some of those are really nice, though. Still played nice and slowly. Um, and there's some of the stuff that, that Johnny's doing on the percussion is um, quite extraordinary. Little rolls of of gentle cymbals and things like that. That sounds really nice. I think the Oxford Poly one might be like the definitive recording of, of that version of it. Then they go off for their big 89 European tour and uh, it's a bit of a staple for most of that. Um, And Jason's definitely playing from that point onwards Uh because you can hear lovely little bits over the top. Um, The thing though that, that separates all the versions from that point onwards, from those earlier ones, is that, well, one of the things I absolutely adore about the proper recorded versions is that sometimes there's so little going on that the guitars know when to stop and, and have a little pause and you know maybe let the violins carry on and let the bass carry on with it sing in the background um, but slowly during the live versions the, the guitars were a bit more continuous and this European tour at the beginning of it is where the guitars are a little more And it just doesn't stop and it chugs away a little too much. It's not so bad at this point because they're still playing it in a nice slow way. By the time they get to Belgium and Denmark, it's got a bit faster. Um, And then by the time uh, they've got to um, Switzerland at the end of that tour, it's moved to being uh, the opener away from the encore. And it's really a little bit full on, I think, with the guitars and uh, I, I just think it's a little bit of a shame. I, I'm, lots of people really like it, and the re- crowd reactions are, are fantastic. So I, I think I'm perhaps in a bit of a minority here. I think it's just taken it a little too far away from what I loved about it so much originally, that it could do with a bit more space uh, in between stuff. Um, mm. And this carried on when they came back to the UK, because it gets a few more outings. Uh, I think the gig, you were at Waterman's Arts Centre, Brimford? Was that one you uh were? No,
1: mine was the Hammersmith Riverside Studio. Oh, Studios, yes, sorry. So I'm, you're so right. I'm getting that confused. But it's, that Waterman's is almost a solo piece from Pete. Again, it breaks down at the beginning, doesn't it? Yesterday? Yes,
0: yes, <laughs> indeed. <Ask it> again. <laughs> and it's played a few more times, Bristol and Aberdeen, Carlisle. And, and I think it's very much settled on being that sort of fairly... Chuggy relentless and it's now got a lot faster version wasn't played at the uh, massive town and country headlining gig or the subterranean warm up for Reading, but it does get uh, another airing at Reading as the final version. Uh, where it's still much in the same style. I think perhaps you had to be there. I think I'm just suffering from listening to these one after the other, because there's um, a couple of those European gigs that we're lucky to have video recordings of. Mm. And uh, particularly when you can see Johnny with his... um, I'm sorry, I'm not a musician. I don't the big furry things on the end of your drumsticks, whatever that is for proper drummers, <laughs> please don't shoot me. But that, he's doing a really, he's really going for it on the, the drums there. And um, it seems to work all right when, when you can see it going on. But um, yeah, I, I think I less taken with some of those later live versions in the studio one, but it's, it's obviously a really important track for Pete. He still plays it an awful lot when he does um, guitar themed gigs. Mm. Um, and overall, it's just, it always amazes me when people can see something in a song which I would never have noticed. You know, I do find those Crayola things a bit of an, an effort to to listen to. And I wouldn't have thought that you could have heard a song like that and, and then done something along the lines of what Spaceman 3 did with it. I mean, a discussion for another day and one I really am slightly loath to start here because... I know that Mark and I have very different views on this one. You know, I've never cracked the thirteenth floor elevators either. Um, although I know mm. they have a massive following, and that yeah, that mm, I think is probably an indication that that uh, there is a counter words. very like different. So it's not. That. That. But the point is, um, lots of people who've done cover versions, they all they all seem really great. I mean, when Space and Three do roller coaster, I think they've just made that their own completely. I really like the Primal Scream. So if inside this house again, and then when I hear the originals, I go, well, you've noticed something there. Well done for noticing it. I yeah, would never yeah. ever have noticed that. So. Uh,
1: well, that's well, the kind of the, the, the two rules of a cover version is you've either got to do it absolutely faithfully and do a blindingly good version, or you've got to completely strip it down and reinvent it. If you fail to do either of those things as far as I'm concerned you shouldn't have really attempted it Mm. so uh yeah (laughs) which they did they did it fairly faithfully with transparent radiation Mm. but with roller coaster they they didn't they they did the opposite stripped Mm. it down
0: which is uh anyway But, but overall you know I I think still one of the the pinnacles and of course it's got its placement on perfect prescription um where you know, Perfect Prescription being a, a bit of a themed uh, around a trip experience, and it just comes at that that perfect place of everything's opening up, really, and it's on that plateau, and, um, well, it's part of what epitomises the, the, the feel that Perfect Prescription gets across, which I know Pete's done interviews saying that's sort of the idea, really. I mean, I... I remember when I was having a, a a rough time at a former job that um, I would come home and, and really not want to know about anything much and uh, not being the person sort of person who has, who had would then fall back on something like hard drugs as a remedy. I would sit down and plug the perfect prescription in on my headphones. And by the time I get to this stage, I sort of feel that there's no need really to have to go and investigate those hard drugs because they've, they've channeled it directly into me and I can't imagine uh, anything feeling more sedate and uh securing you know it's just um an enhancing feeling i think it's uh, one of their best achievements
1: mm. and also the uh, track sequencing again which we keep referencing yeah. to but it works perfectly with that and if you do play the album from start to finish the way it does go from trans asian to feel so good and then carries on is uh yeah. fairly inspired i think lovely
0: people said how much they enjoyed our chatter about how we discovered Spaceman 3 ourselves last time, what our favourite songs were, and uh, since that's a story that everyone's got their own version of, uh, we thought how nice it would be to hear um, some of those. So this time we've got some input from uh, a friend of ours who uh, I am not going to introduce because he's about to
2: introduce himself. So I'm Greg Jarvis and I lead a transatlantic space rock orchestra called The Flowers of Hell, And uh, back in the 90s, I used to do marketing for both Spiritualized and Spectrum when I was at a label in Eastern Europe in Prague, and then later in Moscow as well. And uh, that's me. I first heard of Spaceman 3 when I was 17. I I was at university and I was in the campus radio station. And I remember this German exchange girl going on. She'd found like a Spaceman 3 album in the campus station library, and she was all, Spaceman 3, they are super, they are super. You know, so it just kind of made that note in my mind, and then you know, a few months later, I was going through a girl's cassettes, and she'd lived in Holland for a bit. This other girl on a military base there with the Canadian forces, and she'd found Dream Weapon in a delete bin, so she'd gotten Dream Weapon, and uh, she also had a compilation that had Revolution on it. So I copied those off her. I remember listening to Dream Weapon, going, "Wow, those Germans are fucking nuts!" If this is what gets them excited, you know i'd copied playing with fire on top of the beautiful south's big debut album thing right so i think it shows where my music taste was shifting but i hadn't listened to it that much and then i was 19 working for dedicated in canada where it was going through bmg and we got the the um advance of laser-guided melodies and i gave it a listen but it was just kind of all so much going whoa because my synesthesia i see all timbres as shapes and so it was just kind of a big block and so it just didn't register for me it was too much but then a couple months later this woman nadine gelino who was heading up all the alternative music stuff for us she was going i think laser guided melodies is the best album we've ever put out at this label and so i gave her another listen and on the second listen I was like, oh, fuck, this is amazing. I've never seen, heard anything like this so much going on. And then a few weeks after that, they came through town on the roller coaster tour with the Mary Chain and uh, seeing that show, it just completely blew my mind. It was in, you know, in a huge arena and it really was just Patty Farr's lights and the five of them making that laser guided melody sound live. And it was a Halloween night. And I. Uh, I remember since it was Halloween, we're all from the label, but we're onto a label party that was happening after. So we're all dressed up. I was I was dressed as Ace Frehley from Kiss and I don't even like kiss. Sat next to the A and R girl dressed as a Borg. And on my other side, the legal assistant and she was dressed as a hooker. And we're all just stoned, blown away. And I remember when their set ended, it was like I, we didn't stick around for the marriage chain because it was just so mind blown. Yeah, that's how I got into them. Then after that, you know, I spent the next decade trying to figure out how did they make that sound and getting all the releases that had led up. And, you know, it's kind of great because I was listening kind of in backwards order, deconstructing how they got to that. And then through that deconstruction, I was trying to learn how do you make a sound like that? I see. I always consider laser guided melodies to be a Spaceman 3 album. You know, it might say spiritualized on the packaging, but when you think the advanced singles said spaceman three on them, which was a bit of an issue, right? And when you look at the personnel on it, it's everyone who's on, you know, half of recurring plus somebody doing some very simple keyboard stuff, right? So to me, it's a spaceman three album because although Pete's not on it, so many of Pete's ideas are on it. And you see as Jason evolved that those ideas were no longer on Jason's work. So if you could, if you, if you can, agree with me on laser guide melodies being a spaceman 3 album that's mislabeled then i'd go with angel side um for spaceman 3 themselves it's hard to pick a favorite among so many greats but you know revolution is still just you know a real touchstone for me just the power that's in its simplicity and in its lyrics for me it's really hard because i really love the full gamut of things i mean the uh the tremolo picking on some of the on some of the stuff on um, on taking drugs to make music to take drugs to is really, you know, I mean that's just fine. Absolutely up there is one of my favorites for sure. A big part of, for me with that Spaceman Three sound and that early spectrum early spiritualized thing is as a to shaped Sinister, I see all sounds as shapes that are all around me. And nothing has so many layers going on interacting with each other so perfectly. And so it's the use of all the different timbres, all the different instruments and production sounds on those and the effects on those mixed with that craftwork like precision of how it all flows together absolutely perfectly, you know, and you know it's you know it's right there on playing with fire that part of the manifesto is accuracy. And that accuracy, with all of that creativity, there's nothing else that sets off my synesthesia like that sound. Thanks
0: very much, Greg. That was lovely. I mean, one of the things that Greg talks about there, in case anyone doesn't know what he's referring to, he talks about um, having a synesthesia. And so this is a condition where people's senses sort of cross over each other i don't think there's any one flavor of it i mean some people talk for example about um being able to taste colors for example i think in greg's case he he sees sound so um all of us would probably say that we feel the music that we like but in his case it's a bit more literal and so that's the references he's got there to um to the synesthesia and effects of of listening to things like those early spiritualized records and then going back and then checking out the spaceman's three ones i can only imagine what um what dream weapon must feel like that's something we might have us go back and ask him for a bit more detail on that but the really interesting thing, I think, at the end is that, you know, when we asked um, him to uh, come up with a favourite Spaceman 3 song, he chose a spiritualised song, but then talked about how it's still, as far as he's concerned, it is a Spaceman 3 song. And this is something that that I um, thought about a while ago. Uh, and Mark and I have talked about this, although I don't think I articulated it very well at the time. I mean, when does Spaceman 3 end? I mean, you could say that it ended in 1990 or even late 89 even though recurring didn't come out to 91 okay there's still a spaceman 3 album but it's two separate albums people aren't playing together on it well in that respect it is a spaceman 3 album and in what way is soul kiss or laser guided melodies any different they both feel like they've got the same ambience the same um driving Motivation for the sound that you're after. So I'm I'm with Greg on this one. Really, I I, I think they both they both still carry that that feeling. And in I fact, think I think. That, that, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, please. <laughs> I was just going to say I think that Greg
1: makes makes a very good point about that because. Many of the songs for Laser Guided Melodies did come from the Spaceman period. But if you actually take uh, something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is the, the, the fact that Solkis and Laser Guided Melodies came out fairly close to each other. Uh, I think that um, Laser Guided Melodies was March. I can't quite remember when Soulkiss came out, but You've it's- got,
0: Yeah, Laser Guided Melodies in March and Solkiss
1: in June. So very close together. Yeah. And it's, these were the first, big records that Pete and Jason released separately and to me I, I could hear every part where Pete would have played on As a Melodies and I could hear every part where Jason could have played on Soul Kiss and it really was taking the two parts of the band separating them but their vision was obviously continuing mm. and it wasn't until probably about three years later that really that Spaceman vibe changed. Uh, Jason Jason was playing different style of guitar his his wah wah style changed completely i i, I still miss those foot stomping squelching wah wah sounds which nobody ever made as good a wah wah sound as Jason Pierce did and he he doesn't play it like that now mm. it's just a case of how how things moved on but till about 95 uh, if you're talking about the year that spaceman 3 kind of ended i'd say that it would have been around then because we had another Spectrum album in the form of Highs, Lows, which seemed to continue with a similar kind of vibe as Sulkis. I absolutely love Highs, Lows. And uh, you could say that Jason was still making that same sort of um, vibe
0: with Pure Phase. Oh, I completely agree. I think Pure Phase is, again, as much of a Spaceman 3 album as as the other ones. Um, so much on there has it's, it's got that same Ambiance and feel and highs lows yeah I mean well the first half anyway I I, I know that you absolutely adore it all the way through I, I the second size slightly less successful, but the first half's gorgeous and there's still stuff to enjoy all the way through it yeah all very much the same feeling rather conveniently for anyone who wants to have a closing chapter to all this. It's in June uh, 95 that Translucent Flashbacks comes out, making those early singles available to people again, which have been very hard to get for a long time. And that feels like quite a nice closing chapter. Absolutely. The Spaceman 3 story. After that, you've got Pete going off to do EAR, and um, Forever Alien comes out in October 97. Ladies and gentlemen, in June 97. Look, I mean, there's loads to enjoy and all that stuff, but it, it sounds different. Vi- vibe had changed. Yeah, they, they just sound different. They're, they're now making different kinds of music, which, you know, surely we'd like our musicians to progress. It would be a shame if they were just doing the same thing forever. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I understand completely where Greg is coming from on that one. I mean, 92 and i i came to we it were slightly spoiled. after i came to it slightly after this, so i don't quite but yeah imagine if you were already a fan and having those two albums come out in quick succession I mean, the the
1: the, the anticipation of those albums was quite something i can i can tell i i mean i remember both of them racing home oh. with both of those when uh when they when they when they came out, uh, desperately hoping that my oil pack sulkis would not split <laughs> on the way, out. and it's uh, I still have it. It's uh, I do keep it in a separate sealed plastic bag <laughs> so it won't spoil the rest of my record collection. Should the worst happen?
0: Yeah, there, there's an interesting story about that that sulkis packaging. Um, when I went to talk to Pete to do an interview when I was doing the Spaceman 3 Record Collector, I didn't actually talk to him about Spaceman 3. I wanted that one to be, have equal input from Pete and Jason. And since we didn't get any input from Jason, I didn't want to just probe Pete about it. And there was loads of stuff out there already, but I did have a hope that I might follow that up by sending Record Collector an article about Pete's solo stuff and another one about Jason's. It didn't come off in the end, but I did get as far as uh, writing up Pete's one and uh, he had a story to tell that i'd never heard before about that um so this is a little bit from the the written up article that that never got published it says um The packaging for the initial vinyl and CD copies of Kiss Glide Divine was the most elaborate yet for a Spectrum release. The sleeve was constructed from transparent plastic moulded in several sheets to allow oils to be trapped between different layers. Commonly known as the Squish Pack, these are remarkable artefacts, especially the larger 12-inch version. As might be expected, this inventive design caused a few problems. And then Pete says, uh, when they shipped them from the distributor, they just treated them like they were normal records. Obviously, you need to take some consideration with something like that. And they just chuck them in boxes, pack them up with other records. They're probably OK to be stood. But as soon as you drop them, the weight of the other vinyl squidged. So, of course, when all the stuff arrived at the shops, it was all dripping oil. And all the stock that was shipped with it, including apparently the Manic Street Preachers, were hoping to get some top 10 single with some nonsense that week. And all their stock was shipped at the same time. All got ruined. I mean, everything had been ruined by it. So it did cause a few problems, to say the least. And uh, I then go on to say that whether it can be directly attributed to Kemba or not, it's worth pointing out that the CD of Motorcycle Emptiness came in a cardboard digipack rather than a jewel case, and that it only reached number 17. Yes. (laughs) We may have, Pete, to thank or not thank, depending on your view of Manic Street Preachers, which is definitely not a conversation that we want to (laughs) No. The gig we're gonna talk about this time is from the 27th of November, 1985 at the Mercia Leisure Centre in Coventry. Um, Many people would have seen a a lovely poster that was designed for this gig. It's got um, photos of um, Pete and Jason and and Natty, um, which were taken by Steve Evans, took a lot of the early photos, including some of the ones that were used on um, the cover of uh, Sound of Confusion. Uh, it seems that we've got Steve and, and Craig Wagshaft to thank for all of the early photos of the band. And um, that's a particularly inspired little session where they've got the three of them set against a white sheet in the background and uh, Jason and Natalie... Sort of praying. And praying, yes, exactly. <laughs> so they use this for the the, the the poster design and on the top of the poster... In fact, does it even say Space bin 3 anywhere on the poster? I'm not uh, convinced that it does. It certainly says... Stooges um, Velvet Stones. Yeah, exactly. So that's the the big... Um, I'm just getting the poster up to have a look at it. I'm now having to
1: look up <laughs> <at> the poster <laughs> as well.
0: Oh, no, it does say Space Ben 3. But much larger than Space Ben 3, it says Stooges Velvet Stones. Um, and apart from that and the the venue and the date, that that's all that's on there. And uh, this was um, something which they seem to think was going to get them an audience. I mean, quoted in um, Eric Morse's book, Jason says, um, we made a poster for one show that read Velvet, Stooges, Stones. We thought if we put those references on it, someone would be walking around and say, yeah, I've got to have me a bit of that tonight. One person turned up. We cleared halls. It never got to this mythical rewrite where we suddenly took off. And uh, a couple of the tracks from the, the live recording uh, were included on the um, How the Blues Never Turned Out.
1: This is correct.
0: Yeah, so uh, in the liner notes that that Pete wrote from that, he says, um, uh, two tracks recorded at the ill-fated Mercia Park Leisure Centre in deepest Coventry, a town that rarely could muster more than two people to any of our shows. This was from the show with the Stooges Stones uh, Stones poster. It didn't raise a soul who didn't travel over from rugby. Uh, He says that the recording here is by Sean Cook, ex-Spectrum and Spiritualised when he was still at school. The only person I remember was my uncle regardless it shows how we sounded live in 85 quite an improvement uh, showing from our, our regular rehearsals and indeed we'll have something to say <laughs> a lot to say about what it actually sounds like in a moment but if you were only reading what those guys were saying about this I think you could probably have a little healthy skepticism as to whether it was quite so empty as they claim if it weren't for the fact that I was very fortunate in the last week or so to be chatting online to um Gavin Whisson who had been very important player in in the rugby scene at that time. You know, he and Pete Kemba put together the Reverberation Club where there were so many gigs, and he was um, the main man in band Cogs of Time. And uh, he tells me that um, the Cogs were the support that night, uh, although they're not mentioned on the poster, and that the audience for the Spaceman 3 portion was indeed the Cogs support of Time. Support band. <laughs> Cogs of Time plus one. And uh, yes. when I said, oh, I thought. Pete said that his uncle came along, Uh, Gav said, yeah, he was the plus one. So there really was an audience of five for that show. It really was as unsuccessful as both Jason and Pete seem to suggest there. And Um, worth mentioning, recorded eight eight days after their
1: 20th birthday.
0: Yes, yes. How young everyone was at that time. Just extraordinary. Incredible, really, wasn't it? Um, So the audience being the Cogs, that was Gavin and his brother Darren. Um, on guitars and vocals uh, and uh, Anthony on bass and drumming for the Cogs of Time that night was uh, Tim Morris, who had not long been a member of of Spaceman 3 for for a brief while as well. And, And there were actually more people in the audience although briefly, for the Cog set than, <laughs> than there were for the Spaceman set because, uh, Gav says, all I remember is, is the lack of a crowd and these taekwondo kids asking us to play our, our wild cover of the Tamron's Man again as we just finished playing it. We didn't, they walked out. So, as I said, to him, you know, you never know whose dad works for EMI. Who knows what would have happened if you had played that cover to entertain them for a second time. But yeah, I mean, how spinal tap does this all sound? You know, there, there were some people there, but they're just wandering through at the back. The venue, so presumably the venue, well, it was called a leisure centre, so must have had some sporting activities going on at the time. The venue still exists. Um, it was uh, sold for just under a million in 1988. By the guy who owned it at the time, who was former Coventry Rugby international Keith Fairbrother, sold and the new owner sold it on a year after that, and then it was put on the market again in '95, uh, and then it was finally sold by auction in October 2011, with the bidding starting at one p. It was expected, oh, one
1: of those. <laughs> it was
0: expected to go for about a quarter of a million, but in the end, it went for two million. There wow. seemed to be someone who really wanted it, who just all, almost instantly bid two million. And scared everyone else off it's now called just called the Mercia venue and uh seems to do functions and weddings and um and uh and occasional combat sport things no sign of there being gigs there anymore though
1: <laughs> no and no spaceman three blue plaque yet
0: not yet no one day well i think we should tour the country putting them <laughs> up in in our wake although it seems that most of the places you could put them up in rugby have now been demolished That's um very sad seeing people on uh on on uh, groups that talk about what's going on in rugby with their pictures of demolished imperial and uh, other places that, that host the gigs anyway um pete thought the recording was done by by sean cook but but gav's pretty sure that he wasn't there although who can say it's a long long time ago memories a little well sean if you're out there you hmm. seem to be off grid these days wouldn't you that make the audience
1: audience number six
0: well it might have sweltered those numbers um Increased it by 20%. Gav did joke that maybe they didn't put the cogs on the poster because they were worried that their um, enormous fan base might have uh, just filled the hall, and uh, there you (laughs) go. Um, But maybe, I mean, Sean would have been incredibly young at the time, and it was a school day, and Gav remembers the venue being really hard to get to as well, middle of nowhere venue, so maybe if it was Sean's recording, maybe you got someone else to do it for him. But yeah, onto the recording, I mean, why is this an interesting thing to look at, apart from all that background detail and the famous poster? Because it Spaceman 3 is a three-piece this is in the time you know after a few early gigs when uh, after that Tim Morris and Pete Bain left to join the push and by this point that's finished as well because um, Tim's now in the cogs um But Pete hasn't rejoined, Pete Bain hasn't rejoined Spaceman 3 yet, he does very soon after this, very soon indeed, because only nine days later at a gig at the Reverberation Club on 6th of December, that's Pete Bain's return gig. But at this point, we get a chance to hear a really nice clear recording Mm. uh, of how they were, just as Pete and Jason with Natty on drums, and uh, is it any the less for being that? You don't, you don't really spot the lack of bass, do you? <laughs> it's quite remarkable, actually, because on Spaceman gigs where there is a bassist, it's often one of the most prominent features and the one that makes you think this is what's making the Spaceman 3 sound. And that's definitely true. We talked last time about, about Pete Baines playing at that gig at the Rose the Rose Club. And, mm. um, and obviously Will is just an absolute powerhouse as well. But yeah, somehow it's not actually missed here. There's something about well it's not just the fuzzy guitars and that he's doing an awful lot really there's a lot going on in the background especially especially from the beginning on on 235 you know he's juggling a few things there with the cymbals and the the tambourine which is really just on the top of a cymbal anyway but it, it really is um it's still steaming ahead and if anything i think it gets better as it goes on um, I think I
1: think Natty gets heavier, but by the time he's bringing the intro in of OD Catastrophe uh, or, or TV Catastrophe, it's 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 phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. There's
1: real weight
0: behind his playing. I mean, there are still remarkably still <laughs> um, the typical Spaceman Three enormous gaps between songs. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what's going on because uh, you can't hear that much tuning up going on. I guess it's not like they had an audience to keep. Um, keep on the boil (laughs) they could afford to uh keep you know make their friends wait a bit
1: did you not manage to spot some video game that had entranced you in your youth playing in the background
0: i think that yes presumably (laughs) in a big hall and i gather it is quite a big hall um then Uh, like lots of sports centers and the things where they have little arcade games playing yeah that you can play after you've done your sport i'm pretty sure there is an arcade game playing in the background and it's one that i recognize the noise of so in the hope that anyone can help us out here is that sound you can sometimes hear between songs Now I thought that that was a sound that was made by a game an arcade game called Track and Field which was like a, a you know olympics type game
1: so we had to press two buttons really quickly yeah, to get the yeah, guy running exactly. so I, actually That's I right.
0: did used to play that but I mean, I haven't played track and field since since the 80s when I was playing those arcade games. Um, but I went on YouTube and found some people who'd done complete playthroughs of track and field. And although I recognised all of the visuals and the sounds that came out of it, this sound wasn't one of them. Oh. So it's, I don't know where it's from. If anyone else has misspent their youth at arcades who could put me out of my misery, that would be much appreciated. The other background stuff that is interesting is towards the end, where I think you can just about hear an on-stage conversation where- where, a grumble, yeah, where Pete Cameron is <laughs> effectively saying it's all been a bit of a waste of time <laughs> because nobody's come. Sounds quite with a chuckle, you know, doesn't sound pissed off about it, just a sort of, oh, yeah, well, this hasn't worked out, has it? But as for the performance, yeah, um, it, it, it's pretty aggressive guitar wise, and I do think, as you say, it gets some um, more ferocious towards the end. I think that TV catastrophe is actually quite scary to listen it to, it is, um, it's yeah, quite overwhelming, aggressive. Really. It really is. Oh, for for the benefit of anyone who, who who thinks we're we're just taking the piss, they really were calling it TV catastrophe at this point. I mean, uh, people were accusing them, of course, from the time it got released on uh, on Sound of Confusion of of just ripping off um TVI by the Stooges, and I think the, the, and the, there are lots of similarities in the lyrics and the music's similar-ish. Although I can sympathise with Pete saying it's it's not, and he wrote it when he was at school, and that's fair enough, but they obviously were aware of this as well we're still calling it a tv catastrophe until presumably the idea came to them to change that at some point but yeah that is for us. also i mean the, the walking with jesus is really good as well they're doing that really fuzzed up approach i mean this is only a couple of months before they recorded the um the northampton demos which uh, was eventually used as the first single with walking for jesus with jesus and uh, it is that that fuzzed on one another interesting thing about it is that on these early versions jason's still singing the lyrics uh which are much more explicit uh much heroin lyrics yeah. uh, you know if heaven's like heroin then that's the place for me and then at the end can't stand this life without sweet heroin i mean it's interesting and it, it obviously reveals a bit more of what's really going on i think I mean, we should perhaps save this in more detail for one day we'll probably talk about walking with Jesus in its own right. I think Jason made the right call there, ultimately. I think it does make it a better song by not being so explicit. I think like quite a lot of what goes on in Spaceman 3 and, and, and still with spiritualized as well, there's no need to emphasise it. And Jason's always been very keen to not really go on about things like drugs in interviews. I think the message is quite clear if you know what you're looking for it's pretty clear and I think that makes it more powerful than having to spell it out.
1: I think it would also be tricky to take that song forward with lyrics like that if I mean obviously he didn't know what was going to happen with uh, uh, the popularity of someone like Spiritualized but it would have been difficult singing those kind of lyrics now whereas if you took something like Come Down Easy just referring to getting stoned in such a kind of sort of it, it, the way that those lyrics are sung by Jason he's just he's, it, it's 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 just disposing of that information yeah. it's
0: it's of no consequence to him uh-huh. so um no, far more casual one of the um most interesting rec- parts of the recording is the uh, version of things will never be the same which i think is where it really kicks in i mean the, the early there's 235's mary anne and amen and they're all perfectly fine and i but i think it's when things will be never be the same it sort of steps up that little gear I don't know, but it sounds like Pete might be using his um, Turkish sass on this one. It's got a a slightly different sound to it. Mm. And he's doing a lot more than he tends to normally in, in songs as well. Lots more movement up and down the fretboard and some really interesting phrases. I think it was probably right to phase them out for the album version and make it a little more on the level. It's a bit more like a full on attack, which is how it should be there. But um, this is this makes it sound really interesting though, and again a little bit like the um, the TV catastrophe, and a little bit scary as well. It's all um, sounding quite serious at this point.
1: That's right. Even before that, though, when they when they play Marianne, they've still got that full kind of swirling phase going on in the background. Which, what do you think? How comparatively inexperienced they were. The fact that they've got this equipment to make the sounds that mm. they want it to make is, is impressive.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we don't get a full
1: little doll though, do that, we? Which is, is a such shame. a shame.
0: Yeah. Straight after things will never be the same, which is a great eight and a half minute version of it as well. I mean, it, it really is something to, to get wrapped up in. Yeah. They start playing little doll and then the tape cuts out mm. after, before the, uh, the vocals come in now. Based on so many other recordings of that time, it might well have been just because it all fell apart and they couldn't be bothered to do it again. Who who can say? But maybe we're missing out on something uh, there that uh, we'll never get another chance to hear. There you go. Um, Yeah, overall, extraordinary sound, really. And um, it just seems to be an indication that you can put the ingredients of that band together almost however you want and something extraordinary will still come out of it. Um, I think
1: that also for 1985, uh, listening to that, that sounds like the Space in Three blueprint to me. That's what they took forward. Uh, They stamped that kind of sound on most of the gigs, which they did after that. It became the kind of definitive spaceman sound. What I find really interesting is, compare it to for all the fucked up children uh the 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 very first recording which i know was 84 i don't know what month of 84 that was in and i've i tried to find that out today but it's whatever it is it's yeah it, it, if you think sure. that that can't have been more than 18 months or so before this uh gig that we're talking about and yet the sound had developed so much that they had gone from a kind of slightly scruffy loose bluesy band to being a focused guitar power unit yeah Uh, and that spaceman sound is just there for everybody to hear from from marianne and those other tracks that it it, it is spaceman three but it's 1985 i didn't get into them for another two and a half years so all that stuff missed me by or passed me by to start with
0: Well, continuing our idea of talking about other bands that were either around at the time or influenced or influenced by Spaceman 3 or just anyone who we think that you might be interested in, Mark's going to have a chat about a band which perhaps I'll just light the blue touch paper and retire a safe distance as I turn you over to Mark to tell us all about
1: Loop. Well, certainly a little bit about Loop, who I think are worth mentioning in fairly early in our podcast as the elephant in the room. There can't be many... Spaceman 3 fans who don't know about Loop. I was actually a Loop fan before I got into Spaceman 3. Uh, I'd seen them supporting the Butthole Surfers in, I think it was February 88 at Yulu. Uh, very impressive. Uh, friend of mine uh, knew Josh, who was the singer and guitarist, who uh, the main guy in Loop, he'd been in various bands with him over the years and uh, suggested that we get there early enough to see Loop. And they were, they were very impressive, loud, uh, pretty heavy, pretty aggressive, very, uh, very, very hip- hypnotic. And uh, I started buying loop singles. Then I saw Spaceman 3, my opinions changed. And then I started finding out a little bit more about it. Uh, loop were definitely influenced by Spaceman 3. It doesn't matter what anybody says. You only have to look at the artwork of the first few singles the first album cover and indeed if you listen to the music you can hear a lot of uh, a lot of similarities what's interesting is the first loop 12 inch uh, i don't think actually particularly does sound like spaceman 3 the cover's certainly been influenced by it josh was working for glass records at the time that uh, the spaceman were signed and Pete and Josh knew each other. The first few Loop gigs were supporting Spaceman 3. So there's there's a definite connection there and a definite influence. Where it really took off in terms of uh, the crossover, I think, was with the second Loop single, second Loop 12-inch, which is called Spinning. Uh, very good record again, but it's got two songs in it. One's called Deep Hit and another one's called I'll Take You There. These for me, uh, uh, are just taking the Spaceman sound and just not even reinventing it, just just playing it again, doing it actually rather well. I I like both of those songs, but I'll take you there. He's even got some of Jason's vocal styles. There's a lot of Jason's guitar in it. Uh, The cover seems to be uh, 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 just taken straight, straight from a Spaceman live show and on it went by the time the second loop album came out fade out I think that things had changed they had a much harder guitar sound they'd ceased to go for the kind of drony edge although that does appear a little bit uh, and I think that really from that point on they moved off into another direction that said uh, in the meantime uh, Pete rather pissed off, let's say. I think that's an understatement, with the fact that Loop were getting a great deal of press exposure. The press were falling all over each other to praise them. And the Spaceman were getting really rather negative press in places like the NME, although Loop were more in melody maker and sounds than than the NME. And I think that that kind of press attention really did get to Spaceman 3, particularly Pete. And he said quite a lot of stuff in the press about Loop. Josh, on the other hand, never really made any reference to Spaceman 3, which I found rather odd because if he'd been a bit more open about it, perhaps uh, the, the rift wouldn't have become so wouldn't have become so big. Uh, when my times in meeting with Josh, he always denied that there was any interest, any influence, and always said that he hated them, which I, never really convinced me. Uh, sadly for, for me and my memories of Loop, they they have reformed actually considerable amount of success, but they did come up to Leeds a few years ago, and I'm afraid to say they played possibly the worst headline set I can ever recall and uh, my wife and I left after 20 minutes because she, she grabbed me and said uh, do you think this sounds out of tune? And. I realized that it did. And that really was the end for me. It's a it's it's a shame because I did love a lot of early loop. And those first two 12 inches still are pretty good. I did I did listen to them today in preparation for this. Uh, but there's no mistaking the crossover. Uh, if if you're a Spaceman 3 fan, the chances are that you might even get into loop. You have to have to check them out for yourself. But there's no question that they are they are worth mentioning as a contemporary at that time.
0: Oh, I mean, there are plenty of Spaceman 3 fans who are very big loop enthusiasts. So I don't think there's any reason why there has to be any sort of uh, enmity or rivalry. Um, I have listened to most of it and I don't, dislike it I, I just think i'm a little bit indifferent it hasn't quite clicked with me i was listening to it again some some of the early things earlier on in preparation today and it was interesting because we never talked specifics before but those tracks you name check were ones that stood out to me as some of the more interesting mm. ones to listen to and there are a few others as well i mean it, it all sounds fine i think it's all a little bit of a shame really i think as you've already alluded to if um if if josh sorry for anyone who doesn't know i mean uh, josh um called uh had rechristened himself Robert Hampson well the surname is Robert so that's who we're talking about and that's not intended as a slight at all I mean look how many times Pete Campbell's renamed himself over the years um if he'd been a little more open about it rather than being I don't know maybe maybe he was af- afraid of being accused of of ripping people off but if if it's a band like Spaceman 3 They've been so influenced by so many things anyway, there's no shame of any kind at all in being influenced by somebody. So it's a shame that that wasn't just something that they were happy to acknowledge, because I I think that from, from Pete's point of view, it appears, again, as you were saying, Mark, that the real reason for the enmity isn't because they were in any way copying bits of it but just the fact that they got a bit more successful that's bound to stick in your throat a bit
1: and denied any influence
0: yeah if you see someone else getting successful whereas if josh had said something like yeah we're we're getting successful then there are other bands like us and you should check out spaceman 3 there's been a friendly scene
1: my, my friends at the time who knew him said that uh, he, he was very, well, he was, a, he was a big Spaceman fan, and why not? I mean, yeah. he, worked for, he worked for Glass Records, yeah. I think he might have even helped them get them signed, I'm not sure about that, yeah. but he was certainly there and part of it.
0: But also, I mean, while you can understand the, the, the reasons why this came about, it's it's a bit of a shame that that Pete Gamba did talk about it quite as much as he did. However, justified he may have felt, it, it rather contributed to a slightly caricaturish cartoon um, version of him and what people would expect, and the fact that it then got brought up in all the interviews. Or occasionally he would bring it up before it got brought up even as well, which didn't, you know, didn't help. But
1: then it it became a kind of irrelevant. I I certainly understand why he wasn't happy, but
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: certainly it was it was a kind of red herring that kept on appearing in interviews.
0: So yeah, I mean Shane, And but but you know, Mark has made it clear, no reason why you can't be a massive enthusiast of both. And and this is a discussion that comes up in the, the places where we hang out where people talk about about spacemen three things, and they've got a good following as well. And um despite your experience, I wasn't there, so I couldn't <laughs> couldn't comment on it. It was yeah. I was good I was gutted. Back. Yeah, good well. So but good that people get a chance to come back. I mean it's occasionally you get these reunions which turn out to be um unexpectedly <laughs> well that as well but i'm thinking more on a positive side ones that you wouldn't necessarily expect that would happen and then the time appears to be right because whatever the realities of that i remember a lot of people being very enthusiastic when they announced they were back together it, it got a lot of people very excited i was talking with another friend of mine a few years ago about this because uh, he couldn't quite believe how much um enthusiasm there was when uh, ride got back together But I had to remind him that um, we were both a little bit older. Well, in fact, I very clearly remember when Ride were first getting successful. I was very aware of this being the first time that I was quite keen on a band who were conspicuously younger than me. And... (laughs) um, if you weren't young, if you weren't older than Ride, if you were their age or a bit younger, I can see how they were a really important band for people at that time. And I think that explains a lot of the enthusiasm for them getting back together. They really were sort of pretty much the first top 40 indie guitar band like that. Mm. I suppose you could say House of Love, maybe just about preceded it but i, I think ride had a, a more appeal to the kids as it were we also um, chucked
1: in that they uh, they were
0: also influenced by spaceman three well yeah i mean andy bell has made no secret of it and thus hasn't incurred anyone's wrath as a consequence yeah not <laughs> that they were contemporaries because of course ride came along a little bit later but yeah andy bell has 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 often many occasions talked about his his love for the perfect prescription mm. and um well Andy if you would like to come on and tell us your Spaceman 3 story we would be very grateful
1: absolutely no I mean there's there's some real chewy guitar on that first Ride EP which first time I heard it I thought blimey I know what they would be listening to here
0: <laughs> oh but lovely band Ride right? I mean they went through lots of phases let's not get into that now because people have different opinions at different <laughs> eras of them but you know I stuck it out and saw them uh I keep saying last year, but it wasn't because we've missed a year. It was the year see before. No, no, indeed. It was um, when they were playing in the Hyde Park all day with The Cure. Oh, um, So that was nice to, to get to see them then. In fact, there was a guy, um, I, I until recently worked in a school. And uh, the school I'm in, all the kids have iPads. And one day this um, 15-year-old boy, I think it would have been, came up to me and said, oh, I think I've left my iPad in the classroom next door that's locked, and you let me in. And so I, I, I opened it up, but you can't just give out iPads to the first kid who says it's theirs or they'd all go missing completely. So I got him to um, type in his code to unlock it. And when he was doing this, I noticed that his lock screen was uh, the cover of Vapor Trail. Uh-huh. And how do you even know who Ride are? <laughs> said, "Oh, They were my dad's favourite band and now they're mine. And when we went to Hyde Park to see mostly The Cure, uh, we got off the train and him and loads of his mates got off at the same time, oh, came up excellent. to me and said, oh, oh, you're going to see Ride? I said, well, yeah, we are going to see Ride. It's not the main reason we've come, but there you go. Um, so yeah, there you go. Things are breaking through to the next generation. And how nice is that? Must be a good thing. And coincidentally, we were recording this on uh, Robert Smith's 62nd birthday. So happy oh, birthday,
1: I did birthday. not know that. Okay, <laughs>
0: okay thanks for listening um who knows what we'll be chatting about next time we haven't really thought about that yet but i hope you have enjoyed a bit of our waffle for now until next time we've been spaceman pod thanks for coming thanks very
1: much goodbye